0: We resume our study from last week in the Gospel of John and we're in chapter 11 today. Our text this morning is John chapter 11 verses 17 through 27. So let me just read that text for us. You recall that the Lord was, has heard that uh, messengers came, Lazarus is sick, and uh, the disciples were a little concerned. Lord, going back to Judah, going to Bethany, so close to Jerusalem, uh, they were ready to kill you when you were there last. Shouldn't Do you really need to go? And, and Jesus announcing, don't worry. Well, this, uh, Lazarus is dead, but we're going to him. The passage picks up there in chapter 11, verse 17 to 27. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I'm struck as we go through the Gospel of John how this God of glory who came to dwell among us so often in the Gospels is shown to us in some of these personal encounters. And, and that seems the way the Lord is working today in our lives. It's, it's you know, people want to see God, know God. So often, He has seen and communicated in one on one relationships as we share Christ and what He's done in our life and as we share His Word one on one. And so here we see Jesus dealing with just some individuals as He shows who He is in verse 17 it says Jesus when Jesus came he found that he had already been in the tomb 4 days now now most translations agree with the new king james or say the same thing he found that um son, you know Lazarus had been in the grave but literally you could render it um well the the uh, the young's literal translation more kind of woodenly tells us what the greek says it says this Jesus therefore having come, found him, having been four days already in the tomb. I, I prefer that approach because it, Jesus didn't discover that Jesus that Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. He already knew that. Before he ever left Perea to cross the Jordan, he told his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And so, you know, remember, the, the, when the messengers came, they came saying, hey, Lazarus is sick, but Jesus knew either through his own omniscience as God or or through the revelation of uh, the Holy Spirit to him. But he knew Lazarus was already dead. And he waited two more days and then took the day journey. And Jesus knew, too, that the the custom of the time is that after death, burial typically happened the same day. But within 24 hours, even today, that's the custom um, uh, among the Jewish people. As much as possible, when someone dies, uh, they are, the funeral and burial is within 24 hours. So he knew, so it's not that he came and discovered, oh, he's dead and buried four days. He knew that before he began the trip that he was dead and he knew about the burial. So what he was saying is, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, this is the scene. So John is setting up the setting for us. He's setting up the scene, uh, putting the, the situation and the players in, in place for us so that we can appreciate how it proceeds. He also tells us in verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles away. That tells us something. John uh, is writing in a way that if, if it's not primarily directed to Gentiles, but certainly to those who are who don't know about Jerusalem and Israel, that, that his typical Jewish audience would know where Jerusalem was, and that Bethany was just over the hill of Mount of Olives. So he's writing this for people who, who didn't know. For example, when I tell you Jesus went to Bethany, that doesn't usually do a whole lot for you, and that's why I've often been using on. On the our sermon discussion times, I've shown you maps and I've shown you pictures. Uh, it's just a short walk uh, across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and just over the, the crest of the Mount of Olives, and there's Bethany. So it's close. But again, he's writing to people who maybe, in, you know, John did a lot of his ministry in Asia Minor. Um, and the poor brethren back then didn't have you know, tablets that they could look and see, maps. And the maps of that day didn't even have, I mean, the Bibles of those days didn't even have maps in the back. You know, it was just, it was a terrible time of deprivation. <laughs> we're so used to these things. So, so, G, so, so John is just helping them see it's less than two miles away. The disciples were saying, why are you going back? They want to kill you in Jerusalem. And here he is, less than two miles away from Jerusalem. verse 19, he continues, and, and so, there we could see that he says, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary um, to comfort them concerning their brother. So he tells us, because it was so close, many of the Jews came. So in other words, when, when, remember, when he's saying Jews, he's not meaning Jewish people in general. Typically, he's speaking about the Jewish leadership type of Jews. And so there he was, two miles from Jerusalem. So many of the prominent Jewish uh, people were coming across to Bethany. Now, why did they go to every funeral within a few mile radius? There are some good indications that Mary and Martha and Lazarus—remember, their sisters and brother—and and, and apparently, as we read through the accounts, it, it looks like Martha is the oldest of the sisters. And so, um, it seems like they were something of a prominent and prosperous family, certainly in Bethany, and 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 known to uh, with some prominence in Jerusalem. Prominence often comes with prosperity, and uh, apparently they had they had some they were well off. Not fabulously rich, maybe, but well off. How do we know that? The tomb in which Lazarus was was laid. You know, when we think of tombs and graves, we often think of you know digging a hole in the ground. But but this was a, a more of a wealthier man's tomb. It was a cave dug into the rock. You know, a family tomb with a, a stone that went over it. Like we're told how Jesus was buried in a rich man's grave in a very similar setting, on the other side of Jerusalem. So the tomb suggests they had some family means. Remember, this is the the Mar- Martha and her, her sister Mary is the one that anointed uh, Jesus with oil and then wiped it with her, um, with her hair. Uh, we're supposed to know that because Jesus said wherever the gospel goes, people should talk about that. So that might be a chance for you this week. We'll, we're not, in John chapter 12, we'll get the passage. Maybe you have to avert the passage. That means you're supposed to go and tell people about that and say, what a woman of worship. But if we jump ahead to chapter 12, verses 3 to 5, hear what we're told. Then Mary, Martha's sister, Lazarus' sister, that Mary took a pound of cost, very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But isn't, isn't that that's a first-hand account, isn't it? That's an eyewitness. He can remember how it's just the whole room filled with that precious ointment. Verse 4, then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, um, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii is basically a year's earnings for the common laborer. So, I mean, that's you've got to have some wealth if you can buy that kind of ointment. You know, the common labor he got his daily. He was paid on a daily basis because he needed that to get the day's provisions. So they had the tomb. Um, they had the um, they could could buy costly ointment. Also, the very fact that that John chapter twelve uh, that's at a feast, uh, so that they could put on a feast and welcome Jesus and his disciples and others. So all that to say, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are apparently a prosperous, prominent family. And so when Lazarus dies, some of the prominent Jews came across from Jerusalem and, and gathered. And that was common. Uh, you would, there were certain periods of different aspects of the kind of a schedule of mourning. But the, as I said, the funeral happened very quickly, within 24 hours, if, if possible. The very same day, if possible. And then, but then there would be a time of uh, kind of just sitting in the home and mourning, and that would be for at least this this first week. And and so uh, that's the situation. They would be there in the home, and people were coming, and and uh, there wasn't probably a, necessarily a lot of conversation, but just coming and visiting and showing their respect in that way. That's the situation when Jesus arrives. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Mary and Martha are grieving. And yes, some of the Jewish, prominent Jews, Jewish leadership is there with them. And then in verse 20, now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. How? How? Did Martha know? When well, the newer translations read, "Having received a text from one of the neighbors," <laughs> um, you know, people, someone would. Jesus, uh, if, if you read through the Gospels, this was this was Jesus' place. Uh, you know, hotels were minimal. This is Jesus' preferred place to stay when he came to Jerusalem. And, and so he was well known, and so one of the neighbors, one of the servants, of course, every, so many people recognized Jesus from all the, that went on. Someone saw Jesus coming, and they went to Martha we can began. Remember, she's the oldest sister; she's kind of the hostess of the family. And they probably someone came up and whispered, "Jesus is has arrived, coming is coming into the village." Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. So. She went, as the older sister, having heard, to to welcome him. Mary was doing what mourners did. She was sitting there at the home. Now, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you skip down to verse 32, we'll get that next time. Mary says the same thing. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. First thing, I think they say that the same thing because they must have said it to each other a dozen, dozens of times. If only Jesus had been here. If only Jesus had been here. Because they knew his power. As as was said, I think, last time and other times, you can virtually say when Jesus arrived in a town, a village, disease vanished. Everybody was healed. Um, and so they know, they knew that. You know, there's the one who can touch the garment uh, it, it's, and be healed. And, and so they are well aware if Jesus had been here, Lazarus would be alive. Now when you read that statement, if you had been here, my brother would not have died Boy, does that, is, is that a, a knife between the ribs? Is that just a, you know, is, is that spitefully said, my brother's dead because of you? I don't take it that way. Jesus, you know, when, when Lazarus was really bad, when he was failing, they sent the messenger to Jesus. But they know that he died within hours because before the messenger arrived, Je- Lazarus was already dead. Jesus di- Lazarus died while the messenger was on the way. They could be. If there's any criticism here, they knew, they knew Jesus would, had left to be um, away from uh, the murderous attitudes that were going on right now in Jerusalem. They're not blaming him for being in Perea. If anyone's being blamed, I wonder if they're blaming themselves. You know, um, have you ever done something where later on you say, I wish I'd paid attention to that? It might be a, something of a personal illness. It might be that leaky uh, pipe that just kept getting water on the floor. You know, If I'd only paid a little more attention to that eight months ago, we wouldn't be replacing the floor right now. That, that little red light that was there on the dashboard, I really shouldn't have covered it with tape. I should have done something about that. Um, and so would, would, would I, if anyone is being blamed, how often did Mary and Martha say, I wish we had gone to Jesus earlier. But again, maybe they're saying it all came, maybe it happened so quickly uh, so in other words, I'm saying maybe's, but I, but I don't hear in this um, they're not they're not blaming Jesus. They're just I think this is a statement of faith. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. You know, you, you're the healer. Sick people don't stay sick when you're in town. If only you'd been here, and uh, if their theology was really weak, maybe they said something like, "What bad luck." Huh, Jesus wasn't here. But do, but, but, so, in other words, I take this as an affirmation. Had you been here, Jesus, you could have fixed this. But you weren't. And we don't blame you. If anyone's to be blamed, maybe I am. Because I talked Mary out, or Mary, maybe I am because I talked Martha out. Maybe together, we, can't, we were too worried about bothering the Master. But Lazarus is dead, and I still believe, Jesus, you could have healed him. That's how I'm taking that. So my first read, my first, second read, my third, fourth, maybe fifth read, it's like, boy, are they digging poor Jesus as he arrives. I don't take it that way. I think it's a statement of faith. Uh, Jesus, we know you have the power to heal. So, again, they must have said it to each other. They might have been blaming themselves. Uh, I should mention one other thing. I see a weakness. As I say, this is an affirmation of their faith. Jesus, you could have healed him if you'd been here. That's good. But it's missing something. Because Jesus didn't have to be there to heal. And they knew that. Jesus had been in their, their... their home so many times and they probably heard maybe not every healing because so many were healed, but they heard about the feeding of the 5,000. They heard, they heard about the walking on the water. They heard about um, the, the raising of the dead and they heard of Jesus healing when he wasn't present. Remember, for example, Matthew chapter eight verses eight to 13 centurion asked Jesus to heal his and and the centurion answered, and Jesus said, "I will come." And the centurion said, "Lord, I'm not worthy that you could come under my under my roof. Only speak a word, and my servant will be healed." Remember that. So here's a Gentile, and, and he's saying, "Rabbi, you, you Jews don't come into Gentile homes. You're 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 the you're, you're the great one." My home is not worthy of you to come. You don't need to bother yourself. And so he's saying, just speak a word. He goes on, for I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so he's saying, I know what it means to give orders and things happen. You just give orders, it'll be well. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, This Gentile is making you Jews, my countrymen, look bad. He has greater faith than any of you have shown. He says, then I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, look at this Gentile's faith. There will be many Gentiles in the kingdom. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. They will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And many of Israel will not be in the kingdom because of their unbelief. But anyway, Jesus, verse 13, went on to say, to the centurion go your way as you have believed so let it be done for you and a servant was healed that same hour I'm sure the, the sisters heard how Jesus just said go he's well Mark chapter 7 27 to 29 remember again uh, the, the Sarah Phoenician woman Lord you know my, my daughter is terribly oppressed with a demon and um, and, and, and Jesus said to her uh, in verse twenty-seven, "Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs." And though it's, he's come to Israel, and uh, he doesn't, you know, it's not good to take food away from the family to feed the dogs. And she answered and said, "Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs into the table eat from the children's crumbs." Well, actually, they often eat from the children's plate when the parents aren't looking, but that's another theological issue. But but, but no, she says, call me. A, okay, yeah, I'm not, in the, I'm not in the, I'm the dog in the, in the house of Israel. Fine. But even the dog in the house of Israel gets fed. And, what, and, and, and Jesus said to her, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. He recognized her faith as well, and he didn't have to go. So here's my point. When Mary and Martha are saying through their tears and grief, Lord, we know you could, have even, you could have kept this terrible disease at bay. You could have kept our brother from dying if you'd only been here. And their compliment is lacking. He didn't have to be there. Jesus doesn't have to be present to heal. So, But, but, but that's the conversation that's going and that's where their heart is. Oh, if only Jesus had been here. She goes on in verse 22, Martha speaking, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So again, what is Martha saying? And I, and I hate to put words in her mouth, but I think we have to interpret this. So when she said, if you'd been here, he would have been healed. She's not blaming him. When she says, even now I know whatever you ask, God will give you. Is she saying... In a, in a kind of a gentle, feminine way, suggesting you can still heal him, Lord? I think some take it that way. But if you, again, skip later into the chapter, in chapter 11, verse 39, and spoiler alert, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus, okay? But there we go. In verse 39, Jesus commands, take away the stone. Martha the one who meets him. We're, talking, we're in the conversation with her right now. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he has been dead for four days. What does she say? Don't open the tomb. He's dead. She's, she's telling him, what are you doing? Don't open the tomb. So she's not looking for him to raise the dead. Otherwise, if, she, if that's what she thought, she'd be turning around and high-fiving everyone around her. Here it comes. But no, she's not looking for that. So when she says, even now I know what, whatever you ask of God, God will give you, she's again, faith. The fact that my brother died hasn't in one bit diminished my trust that you are the one and you have the power to heal. I'm, I'm trusting in that, Jesus. I'm confident of that. So verse 23, our Lord says to her, your brother will rise again. These few words here, you know, Jesus can preach long sermons if he wants, but, but I, I think he's being very economical with his words and very simple in his statement. Your brother will rise again. So she's expressed her faith in the Lord and the Lord responds with the assurance, Lazarus will not stay in the grave. He will rise again. And then we see Martha again speaking her faith in verse 24. Um, Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She says, yes, Lord, I know. This death isn't permanent. And that is a great comfort. That is a great comfort. I, I, I've said it again and again, and I'll say it now. One of my great comforts and, and joy even is to be in that cemetery by the side of the grave and realize this is, this is temporary. Uh, this body is being put here in trust until that day when this, this tomb will be emptied. This body transformed. Or we might, if we've been in the uh, Sunday school class, transfigured uh, by God's refulgent glory, but we won't get too far into that. But anyway, th- this body is it, this is this isn't the end. This isn't the end. And so she's taking Jesus' remark don't worry, uh, beloved Martha. We hope in the resurrection. And so that's what she says. She takes his words and says, yes, I know he'll rise in the resurrection at the last day. Now remember, we've been saying the Sadducees denied resurrection. They denied miracles. They denied eternal soul. uh, They denied the sovereignty of God. And they denied resurrection. The Pharisees affirmed those things. And, And that was the affirmation of the scriptures. And so... She didn't just believe in the resurrection because of the Pharisees saying it. She believed it because that's the biblical faith. In case you're wondering, Daniel 12 would be a good example of that. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time, Michael shall stand up at that time at the end of days, at the, as the kingdom is, is upon them. So at the end of the tribulation, at that time, Michael will stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time and at that time your people shall be delivered everyone who is found written in the book so speaks of there will be a coming time of tribulation and then verse 2 and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt and so Daniel teaches there's a coming resurrection There's a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And so there it is in the scriptures. The the grave is not the end. But Jesus himself taught this again and again. In John chapter uh, 6 verses 39 and 40, um, Jesus said, you know, everyone the father has given to me, I will lose none of them. Verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44 of chapter six of John, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. John chapter six, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now that's, Jesus taught resurrection. In particular, he's speaking about the resurrection to life, the resurrection of believers. But there's a great difference between what Jesus says and what I say. I speak of the resurrection where well, God will raise the dead. Jesus says, I will raise the dead. I can't say those words except quoting Jesus. But Jesus has affirmed again and again eternal security of the believer kept secure by by God's grace. And, And then the final security, even the grave will not defeat that. God will raise them up in the resurrection. Jesus will raise them up in the resurrection. So Jesus again and again has said, and John notices saying it, quoting at each of these times in John chapter six, I will raise him up at the last day. So when Martha says, yes, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she's thinking of Daniel and she may have been thinking about the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, I know. Um, But though when she says he will rise up again at the last day, wouldn't have been great if she said, "And I know you will raise him up at the last day." But maybe she didn't hear those quotes exactly, or and it would. But this is the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus responds to her, "I am the resurrection and the life." What a powerful statement that is! I am the resurrection and the life. He goes beyond the um, doctrinal statement. He, the resurrection uh, to judgment and to life right there in Daniel. The resurrection of the righteous, by, of, of the saved, by the voice of Jesus has been affirmed again and again. And here Jesus is saying, there is a resurrection, but that can be so impersonal sounding. Again, like a, a creedal statement. Now, I'm not against creedal statements, but words, sometimes, that's the problem. Sometimes a creedal statement stops as a creedal statement. It stops as a, a creed that we can recite. You know, we can read the, the catechism on Sunday morning. I'm not against that, obviously. But if it stops there, those are finely expressed words of doctrine without embracing it as our, for ourselves. And so what Jesus is, is making it very personal. Not just the dead will rise, not just I will raise the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. What an incredible statement he's saying. He is the resurrection is is so identified with the work of Christ. He is the one who purchased the redemption so that death has lost its victory. Death's sting has been removed. That was accomplished by Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty and he will be the one who calls the dead out of the grave. I am the resurrection. It's not just a a truth. And I love truth. But you see what I'm saying? It's not just this doctrinal statement. He's making it living and vital because it's it's, it's in Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the resurrection of of the the believer from Jesus Christ. And the resurrection to life, as opposed to the resurrection of judgment, the resurrection to life is only for those who know Christ. Christ. Are, are saved by his work on the cross, which any of the saved, Old Testament, New Testament, are saved through the work of Christ. Uh, J.C. Rowell, I like to quote him, uh, Anglican bishop and, and firm believer in the truth of God uh, in the late 1800s, and even more important than any of that, a good friend of Mr. Spurgeon. Uh, He writes this, he tells her that he is not merely a human teacher of the resurrection, but the divine author of all resurrection, whether spiritual or physical, and the root and fountain of all life. Skipping down a little bit. All must feel that this is a deep saying, so deep that we see but a little of it. One thing is very clear and plain. No one could use this language but one who knew and felt that he was very God, no prophet or apostle ever spoke in this way. And that's true. If I stand with boldness before you and speak of the the certainty and the glorious hope of the resurrection of the dead, I would hope that you would be trusting in, in that and glorying in that. But if I should say to you, and I am the resurrection of the life, I hope he would run outside and look for some stones <laughs> and come running in. Um, but Jesus can say it. See, he is, he is a, he's showing his deity. Jesus never claimed to be God. Moses wouldn't say this. Elijah wouldn't say this. Isaiah wouldn't say this. John the Baptist, he calls him the greatest prophet. Up to that time, John the Baptist wouldn't say this. He would say, I'm not worthy to untie the the, the sandal of Jesus. But Jesus can say, I am the resurrection of life. He is the issue. But not just the issue to determine. He is the one to know and trust. It's personal. And he says, not only am I the resurrection of life, he says, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. I suppose if someone's looking for a contradictory sentence, they might say it there. Look at that. How can you die and live? But Jesus is purposely asking us to think. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. So he's here to explain when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Belief in him, the one who trusts in him, he says, "Shall not, though he die shall, not live, shall live. What he's saying is there's two kinds of life. There's physical life and there's spiritual life. This body may die, but I haven't died. There's a difference between the death of the body and the eternality of the soul. When our when, when body uh, when our body dies the soul leaves it. When our body fails the soul uh, leaves it and goes into the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. For to me to live is Christ; to die is gain. And that's contrary to the idea of what some have taught of uh, of a soul sleep. There is no soul sleep; the body sleeps. The soul is instantly in the presence of the Lord. Paul. That's why in Philippians, when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says, in the context he's saying, if I had to choose between living and dying, uh, that's a hard one. If I'm living, I'm, I could be useful to you Philippians and others. If I die, I'm with the Lord. Now, if, if, if death meant soul sleep, that's not exactly um, better than I'm doing nothing. No, no, he's saying, I, I, I don't know if I want to serve you, serve the Lord here among you or serve the Lord in his presence, but to live or to die is gain in Christ. So what, he, what, what Jesus is saying is he is the life and, and, and if your body dies, the spirit immediately is in his presence. The, the spirit does not die, it is eternal and ever living So though your body die, yet you are alive. That reminds me of uh, Deal Moody. I've quoted this often. And he said this, Someday you'll read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit shall live forever. I don't know if he's thinking of John 11, but his, his thoughts are exactly reflecting what Jesus is saying, that though he may die, he shall live. Moody says, my body may die. It did die. We can go there to Northfield, Massachusetts, and look at his grave, and his body's there. But Moody is with the Lord. D. James Kennedy is also with the Lord now. You may remember him. He was a Presbyterian minister in Florida. Widely popular. Created the uh, evangelism explosion concept and uh, faithful Bible teacher for many years. He said this, Now I know that someday I'm going to come to what some people will say is the end of this life. They will probably put me in a box and roll me right down here in front of the church. And some people will gather around and a few people will cry. But I told them not to do that because I don't want them to be them to cry. I want them to begin the service with the doxology and end with the hallelujah chorus. Because I'm not going to be there. And I'm not going to be dead. I will be more alive than I've ever been in my life. And I'll be looking down upon you poor people who are still in the land of the dying and have not yet joined me in the land of the living and I will be alive forevermore in greater health and vitality and joy than ever, ever I or anyone has known before. That's the attitude of the believer. Though the body may die, yet we are alive in Christ. More alive at that time, not hindered by this. Notice he says, I'll be looking at you poor people stuck in the land of the dying when I would have been liberated. That's what he's trying to communicate: who he is and, and the life he gives. And he goes on, and he, and he goes on. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait, wait a minute. There's the contradiction. Wait a minute. You just say if they die, yet they'll be alive. Then you're saying, and if they live, and, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What do you mean they'll never die? You just said if they die. Again, he's, unless you're try- looking, if you're trying to make a contradiction, you can force that into it. But it's very simple, isn't it? Whoever lives and believes, that's, that's spiritual life. Uh, you remember, as, as Moody was saying, oh, this is when I came to spiritual life. He's saying, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die spiritually. Spiritually. Yes. So if our, if our physical body may die, still be alive spiritually. And so. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are alive. Your body may fail you, but you're, 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 you are alive. And then he presses the point home. Do you believe this? If I were to create a movie of this, I'm not sure how I would do that. Does he try and make it a little more gentle? And he's looking down. That's some kicking a rock and say, do you believe this? Or does he ta- stop, turn, fix her eyes and say, do you believe this? This reminds me of uh, that expression that Del Tackett so often uses. Do you really believe what you believe is really real? Jesus is, gets it to the point much more quickly. Do you believe this? Do you, believe, not, not, do you believe what you've said about the resurrection in the last days? Do you believe I am the resurrection of life? And that whoever knows me as Savior is, is alive and that in a way that cannot be extinguished, even though their body dies, they are alive. No, what's she saying? Lazarus is alive. He his body died, but Lazarus has not died. Do you believe this? Again, no no teacher no preacher no rabbi no prophet could make such claims And, and Martha responds with another statement of faith she said to him verse 27 yes Lord I believe you are the Christ the son of God who is to come into the world now I think I see progress in Martha notice she is now saying not just I believe in the resurrection but Lord I believe in you believe in you. And she, makes, uh, and she has a three-point doctrinal statement. And so this is a, she's, she must have heard many a rabbinic three-point sermon. Um, and unfortunately, um, I couldn't figure out how to alliterate it, so we'll just go with her words. Number one, you are the Christ. Lord, I believe you are the Christ. Uh, that's the Greek translation, Christos, for the Hebrew word, Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. Everybody's looking for where's the Messiah? Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. Bold statement back then. But everything the scriptures said of the coming Messiah, you are the Messiah. I believe that, she says. So do I. And then she goes on and says, you are the son of God. You are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus used that title of himself that got the rabbis ready to kill him because in doing so, he was making himself equal with God. Again, if I can say, Moses didn't say that, Elijah didn't say that, John the Baptist didn't say that. That was a claim of deity. It seems she somehow understands. There is a a claim to deity. Does she understand the fullness of it? Can she... is she understanding you're both God and man and all that? I don't know how much she knows. But she is using the claim of deity that he has made. I believe you are who you say you are. You're the son of God. In other words, you're more than Messiah. And then she goes one step further and says, he, you're, you are the son of God who is to come into the world. To come into the world is referring to the, you know, you're the promised Messiah. The, who was We've been expecting him to come and you've come. You are the fulfillment of our expectations, of our yearnings, and of God's promises. But also when he says coming into the world, that again points, Jesus again and again talk about I came into the world. That's, this is why I came. I was sent. In other words, he's speaking there of his deity. The rest of us we start here. Our, our, our existence as a person begins at conception. Jesus and his deity had no beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In his eternal nature as God, he came into the world from heaven. The rest of us, we start here. But notice, she uses these phrases that she must have heard around the table and heard in, in various contexts. You are the Messiah, I believe that. You are the Son of God, I believe that. You have come into the world in the fulfillment of promise sent by your Father in heaven. And frankly, I think she outdoes Peter's great uh, confession in, in, in Matthew 16, for example. Thou art the Christ. She does him better. This is a bold and strong statement. Does she get the fullness of who Christ is? No. I'm not sure I do. But she's made tremendous progress and makes a bold. But notice she's now turned from creedal hope. Creedal hope is good. Personal trust. That's essential. The issue is not do you believe in a resurrection coming. The issue is are you trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior? as as we kind of draw to a close let me just draw some thoughts from this text let's not make the mistake of Martha that's so easy we pick on these people she's doing great isn't she? she she's really doing remarkable she's not running Jesus down she's speaking from the heart and she has grasped more than some of his disciples have but let's not make the mistake of limiting God oh if only you'd been here again I've told you about the kid who got home from church Sunday and and in his prayers he just said oh Lord we had such a a great day at church today if only he had been there (laughs) let's not limit God there was a book written years ago your God is too small I think we, we so often fall into that trap your God's too small let's not fall into that trap with Martha Let's not forget who he is. He's the eternal. He's omnipotent. He's the omniscient. He's the omnipresent one. Let's not limit him. Oh God, if only you could. Of course he can. That's not the issue. Martha had to be reminded that faith is more than correct doctrine. I love correct doctrine. But biblical faith is a living and vital trust in the God revealed in the Bible. It's a personal relationship with the living God. Don't miss that. Now, when you have a personal relationship with the living God, your, your thinking, your theology, your doctrine uh, becomes more and more accurate as you spend time in his word. But over history, there have been those who, we could go across the world today, there are those sitting in churches who are reciting creeds who have no idea who the living God is in terms of their personal relationship. Don't, don't make the mistake. Now, Martha was firmly a believer at this point. But it's, let's not be satisfied with the creedal statement. We need to know the Christ personally. Jesus said, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real about Christ? Are you firmly trusting in this? Do you firmly believe that at the moment of death, you're in the Lord's presence? So often you can see so much about how a person's lived and what they believe by how they die, how they view their own death. There was a uh, missionary, um, Jack Vinson in China many years ago, who was uh, captured by a bandit. He put a revolver to his head and said, I'm going to kill you. Aren't you afraid? The missionary Vincent replied, no, I'm not afraid. If you kill me, I'll go right to God. He killed him. And he went right to God. That bold faith and profession of faith, the word of that spread One of the other missionaries wrote a poem that expressed that, which, among others, was a great encouragement to uh, John and Betty Stamm before they died for the faith. Here's Here's a part of it. Afraid of what? Afraid, I should say, of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from his wounds of grace. Afraid of that? I'll go on. I wasn't going to. Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, oh, heaven's art. A wound of his counterpart? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptized with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? There he's speaking, if I give my life for the sake of the gospel. Afraid of that? Afraid of death? Do we understand what death is? one of the men in history who who has made such an impact and really moves me to read his and hear his speeches and and, and see what he has accomplished is uh, Churchill, Winston Churchill. He arranged his own funeral. And uh, there were stately hymns in St. Paul's Cathedral and uh, a beautiful liturgy and, and, and the greatest of the greats were there. After they said the benediction, he arranged for a bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And by the way, yes, you can go on YouTube and, and watch and hear. A bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral on one side, and he played the last post. The British Army, that was the last bugle call of the day as night fell. Um, the, la- the, the last uh, post was, was blown, and that was a signal Days over, get to bed. Well, that then be eventually became like our taps, which is also, it's also over done over the the grave of the fallen. And so he had it that he wanted the bugler to play the last post. Oh, that's amazing! Right up there in that incredible um, dome of the cathedral. But, but then he said, after that, he wanted played on the other side of the dome another bugler, Reveille. That's the first bugle of the day. That's a start of the dawn, and it says, Get up and get to it. What was he saying? It's not over with the last call. Get up and get going. And so that's a statement of incredible faith. Death isn't the end. Get up and get going. Uh, speaking of his hope. And, and a call to us as well, perhaps. Get up and get going. Get out of here. Go do something. But I love the expression that that is. The, the end is not the end. Death is not the end. This body will rise again. Even this body is, is not finished. And the soul, it doesn't miss a beat. It will be liberated from a body that can't keep up. And some of you will say, yeah, I understand what you mean. But one day we'll be reunited with a body suited for eternal life. Do you believe this? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to know this one who says, I am the life? I'm not asking if you believe things about Jesus. If you can recite the seven steps, four laws, three things, whatever it might be, do you know this person, Jesus Christ? Is he your Savior? I think for most of us, we would say yes. By God's grace, yes. Yes then join with the saints of old who can say, afraid? Of what? Freed to live unhindered? If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear his, his, his call. Come unto me, ye who are heavy laden. For those of us who know Christ, may our assurance in him give us joyful hope. Father, thank you for sending the Christ, your Son, the Son of God, to come into the world to make the way for us by his own physical death that we might have life in him. Father, thank you for that life. Father, I pray for any who, loved ones we may have that are there at that place in their life where that transition is soon to happen we pray your mercy but especially that they might know you father grant us joyful courage in Christ and faithful service while we can I ask it in Jesus name